everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about Project Connect and Austin's new light rail system. But first, a little background. So Austin has long toyed with the idea of building a light rail transit system, something that is fast and runs frequently and ultimately allows more people to get around our city without a car. In fact, in 2000 and 2014, we held elections to build light rail in Austin, and both of those elections failed. But in 2020, things changed, and voters approved a permanent 20% increase in our property tax rates in order to fund a complete overhaul and expansion of our public transit system, including the construction of our city's first ever light rail. And a quick note here, um, when we're talking about light rail, it's kind of an industry or a technical term, but basically light just means that it's smaller in size than a larger train like the red line, which is primarily a commuter line bringing people in and out of the city. The idea behind our new light rail system is that it would help people get around within the city. And it's all electric. Anyway, so after voters approved Prop A in 2020, a new independent organization was created to oversee the build-out of our new transit system. And that organization is called the Austin Transit Partnership. Also back in 2020, the initial design sketches for the light rail system included two lines and about 28 miles of rail. But by 2023, rising property values, inflationary pressures, and supply chain issues brought on by COVID led to rapidly rising cost projections for Austin's new light rail system. So in March of 2023, the Austin Transit Partnership released five new options for the first phase of our city's light rail build-out, all of which were in budget, given our new budget realities, and they all cost roughly about the same amount of money but with different trade-offs. So some of the options, they ran entirely on street level, while others included elevated or underground sections. Some options went further than others. Other options reached more parts of the city. One option went to the airport. The others did not. Uh, And after all these options were released, there were about six weeks of public engagement to get all of our feedback on which of these five options we should ultimately choose. Now, as ATP staff explained to me, the idea was ultimately to choose a route that reflected community values, would be a good candidate to receive federal funding, which is crucial for making the project happen, and would be a route that people like and use so that it can be easily extended and expanded in future phases. And in the end, the ATP board, city council, and Cat Metro all voted unanimously to approve the 38th Street to Old Torf to Yellow Jacket route. And here's where that will go. So the rail line will start at 38th Street and Guadalupe Street, or Guadalupe, as I've been told over and over again on social media. It will then run down Guadalupe Street, pass UT, through downtown, cross Ladybird Lake at Trinity Street, and then it will split with one line running down South Congress and ending at Old Torf. And then the other line will run along Riverside Drive, past Montopolis, and end at Yellow Jacket Lane, which is near Annie's Day and Night. And importantly, the route also includes several priority extension options. Um, One would be east all the way to the airport, and north all the way to Crestview. Now, these are options that, if additional funding becomes available, might even get to be included in the first phase. 
and if not, they'll be a priority for the first extensions or part two of the system. So anyway, that's the route. Now, let's dive a little deeper into the data. According to the Austin Transit Partnership, this route is 9.8 miles long, and it includes 15 stations. And the estimated travel time from 38th Street to Oldsworth is 23 minutes. And from 38th to Yellow Jacket is 31 minutes. And the estimated number of daily riders served is 28,500. So, <laughs> why was this particular route chosen? It did rank pretty high when compared to the other routes on many key metrics, but it only came in second place when it comes to average daily riders. The proposed North Lamar to Pleasant Valley route had more riders, almost 40,000 average daily riders, in fact. But that route didn't really go far into South Austin. And what about the airport? Although the airport is included as a priority extension in this chosen route, um, it's not... It, it doesn't include an actual airport stop, at least right now. So to answer all these questions and more, we're going to listen in on two interviews I recorded earlier this summer. First up, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Lindsay Wood, the Executive Vice President of Engineering and Construction for the Austin Transit Partnership. You know, that's kind of our, our line that we have picked out. Let's talk about why that route was chosen. You know, that was one of the ones that um, I think, you know, it had high ridership. It didn't have the absolute highest number of ridership, but it went to different areas. So, like, let's talk about some of the uh, decision making that went into picking this particular route. Yes. So we looked at several different criteria both the criteria to receive federal funding because we need a project that can leverage every local dollar we have to build the most that we can. And we're relying on roughly around half of the project being paid for uh, through grants received uh, or will be pursued through the Federal Transit Administration. So there's various criteria for a project to be competitive for federal funding and ridership is a piece of that. But there's also several other things like land use. And um, and by land use, I mean transit supportive land use and, and kind of density and development and policies for affordability around the transit corridor and the light rail stations. And there's also, we call them community values criteria. And those are what our, you know, what we heard directly from our community here in Austin about what was important to people for this first phase of the project. And some aspects of that uh, included affordability and, and equity. And so this first phase that we have adopted serves the greatest number of people of color as well as affordable housing units along the corridor. Gotcha. And then, you know, obviously, I'm sure this is a question you've been getting a lot. I have gotten it a lot in reporting about it. Why doesn't it go all the way to the airport? So let's talk about kind of the decision making behind that and share maybe some of the numbers about maybe leaving the airport off as a still priority extension, but not having it be part of this initial chunk. Yes, you know, it was interesting and actually, I'll admit a, a bit of a surprise how many people we heard from that said, we really want to get to the airport. Uh, we thought that that might be the case, you know, in certain groups and, and stakeholders, but it was very common 
um, it was common geographically, it was common demographically, it was sort of this universal thread that a lot of people said, you know, I'd really love to take light rail to the airport, sort of regardless of where they're coming from. But we also heard from a lot of people in the community that while they wanted that connection to the airport, in, in many cases, they prioritized the, the critical trips of everyday users for the initial first phase. And I want to get to the airport as quickly as we possibly can thereafter. So uh, we have identified that as a, a priority extension, which means that if we're able to identify additional funding, we actually could potentially accelerate it into the first phase of the project. And if not, then it would be you know, the first extension we would do after phase one. Uh, but we will continue to look for additional funding sources and, and seek that opportunity to, to potentially accelerate it into phase one if we're able to. The, the ridership to the airport has been a common question we get. You know, how many more riders does that add? And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of the time not as many as people would think from a, a modeling perspective because um, there's, there's, there's a certain number of trips to and from the airport every day and only a certain percentage of those are going to choose the light rail based on if it you know, is convenient typically is, is usually the, the first criteria that people pick when it comes to an airport connection. Does it get them to where they want to go the fastest? And that really depends on what the expanse of the entire light rail system and its multimodal transit connections are. So the more we build out the system, the more convenient that connection becomes because it reaches, you know, all of the various destinations or origin or connection points from the airport people might be reaching. So often in, in many cities, uh, it's it's not necessarily part of the first phase of their light rail system. And it becomes part of the expansion because as that system gets bigger, it's actually a more attractive way of getting to and from the airport because it provides more connections. And, and many cities have seen that same trend that it maybe doesn't provide a ton of ridership initially, but as the system is built out and has further reach and sort of you, you build out all the different spokes in the wheel, then in that extended or expanded system that um, that mode of travel does become really attractive. Okay. And, and I guess the part that would go to the airport too um, might have a, a slightly higher price tag to it. My understanding is that it'd have to be partially elevated probably in order to like deal with the highways and, and that kind of situation over there. That was like the one line option that did go to the airport was partially elevated. I, I assume that's got to be more expensive, but I don't know if that's true or not. It is. Uh, you know, building a bridge structure is more expensive than building a light rail on the ground. And that segment has to cross uh, 183 South, uh, and, and we can't cross the highway, you know, at the same level. There's too much traffic, both vehicular traffic and with the light rail uh, trains. And so we would need to separate those by having an overpass of the rail going over the highway there. And then along 71, similarly, there are, are some constraints with TxDOT is actually expanding the or is planning to expand 
the 71 frontage road. And so there, again, are, are some highway interactions that we would need to be on a bridge to avoid. Right. And so some of this, um, I know also I heard at a council meeting that in the interim, if the additional funding can't be found, there is the potential for maybe a bus shuttle to run to and from the airport to basically yellow jacket so that people could get onto the light rail line, at least at that point. Yeah, right. So there, there's that bus. Uh, that's correct. We are looking at options in the interim for how to make that that connection and bridge that gap to make it as convenient as possible. There is existing bus service today. It's, it's the local bus route 20, but we are working with both Cat Metro and the city and coordinating with the airport as well to see what we could do to optimize that connection between Yellow Jacket and, and the terminal at the airport to make that as convenient as possible until the light rail extension can be completed. Right. And then one just last thing quick on this. When we talk about looking for additional funding, like where might that come from? Is that asking for more from the federal government? Is that trying to get the airport to chip in money? Like what does that look like? We are looking at all possible options and, you know, considering any opportunities, any and all. Okay, cool. Um, Okay. So another question is obviously this whole, this whole rail line um, is, on street, the the route that was picked. Um, how does that still, you know, I've had a lot of questions around like, well, will that be faster than just being stuck in traffic? You know, like what what is being built that would make it still quicker? Why is on street still like a an option that's worth worth having for rail? So the transit way, even on street, is in its own dedicated space. There are no vehicles. The trains are not stuck, you know, behind cars. It has its own lanes, essentially, where we would build the tracks into the street level and the vehicles travel in in lanes next to it. And uh, that allows for a, a level of reliability and to avoid that sort of traffic congestion for the trains themselves. Now, at the street level, they do have to interact with other modes, whether that's cars or, or even pedestrians at intersections. So at the cross street, they have to interact with the same intersections that everyone else does. And the way that we help for the, the transit mode to truly be reliable and efficient and be something that people want to ride because it gets them where they want to go in a, a reasonable amount of time is by giving it what we call transit signal priority. And what that means is, so say a train comes to a station and it stops to let people off and and let them on. And then when it gets a green light to come out of that station, it then gets green light all the way until it gets to the next station. So it's not stopping at traffic lights. The cross streets will be stopped, but the trains will have all green lights as it moves forward. Gotcha. And, you know, another big question um, I feel like I've, I've, I've heard out there a lot is, you know, some of this line, we already have buses, like you mentioned, that run, you know, on Guad, things like that. What makes light rail different than the bus system we already have? What, what makes, yeah, installing the light rail worth it? Uh, so there are, are several aspects that light rail can do that, that buses cannot. And one of the main ones is the capacity. We can simply carry more people 
in the light rail system. You know, trains can carry, uh, and it depends on if people are seated or, or standing, but, you know, more more than 200 people per vehicle, depending on, on the type of vehicle, whereas buses carry a significantly smaller number. So with trains traveling uh, or arriving roughly every, say, five minutes, we can move a lot of people really efficiently in a light rail system, whereas buses, to move the same number of people, you would need so many buses that they would all actually bunch up together and wouldn't be able to serve, um, you know, with any reliability because they'll, they'll just all get bunched one after the next. Okay. And so one last thing on the specifics of this then, uh, the bridge over Lady Bird Lake. So that um, would happen at Trinity. That would be a new bridge, I guess, that we would have to be, that would have to be built. Why, why go with a new bridge as opposed to like piggybacking onto an old bridge because on the face of it, it seems like well that could be very expensive right building a new bridge why, why was that choice made yes um there, there's a couple of reasons probably one of the biggest being that the existing bridges cannot carry the light rail vehicles they have a very different loading than what those bridges were designed for and they don't have the structural capacity to carry light rail even if we wanted them to so would likely require uh, reconstruction of the bridges to begin with. And, and that introduces a whole slew of its own impacts. Uh, you know, you have, I suppose the choices could be Congress where we have, um, you know, the bats and a historic district and, and substantial environmental impacts that could occur with that. And, and similar to South First Street or any other location, it would also... Uh, have detrimental impacts to the the overall transportation network downtown as you know the the river or ladybird lake it's it's our biggest bottleneck uh, everything kind of gets constrained into these very limited number of pinch points of how people can get north or south of ladybird lake and if taking one of those you know out of operation to rebuild it has has a substantial operational impact uh, and, and we also have to think about the overall capacity needed. Again, those are our bottlenecks and reducing the capacity of other modes to get into and out of downtown by, by taking that space for the light rail. Um, we, we felt we needed additional space, not taking existing space in order for all modes to be able to get into and out of downtown. And that was Lindsay Wood from the Austin Transit Partnership. To give us more of a community-centered understanding and opinion of Austin's new light rail system, next, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Aves Azar, who sits on the chair of something called the Project Connect Community Advisory Committee, which he's going to tell us all about. Okay, let's listen in on that interview with Aves. All right, I'm here at the Vez and we were talking about uh, Project Connect, all things transit. Let's just start, um, you know, you're a member of the Community Advisory Committee. I want to start with what that is, because that's probably something that maybe not everyone knows about. Um, what What is that group? So the Project Connect Community Advisory Committee is a group of community members whose task is to provide feedback to the Austin Transit Partnership, 
uh, Cap Metro uh, Board and Austin City Council around anything related to equity, but particularly anti-displacement funds, community engagement, and some of those items. So it's a big purview because we're looking at all things equity, which of course can mean anything from governance as we've done in the past or related to the real alignments themselves or amenities in EDOD. All of these things are things that the Project Connect Community Advisory Committee has been part of. And it is worth mentioning that our makeup is such that we have eight community members and an ex-officio member, but then we have five folks who are appointed by different committees, both in Cap Metro and the city, who've been doing this work previously. So that includes the Urban Transportation Commission, the Mayor's Committee for People with Disabilities, the Cap Metro Customer Satisfaction Advisory Committee, the Community Development Commission, and um, the Customer Satisfaction Advisory Committee as well. Nice. And so this is... Um, you know, an interesting concept. I feel like this is something I remember when uh, Prop A was put on the ballot in order for us to fund light rail in the first place. This was something that I know a lot of community advocates at that time when it was being put on the ballot pushed for this, pushed for the creation of this committee afterwards so that there would be this ongoing opportunity for the community, especially underserved communities, to um, play a role in the development of our future transit system. I think that's part of what this committee has done is really um, become part of those community voices. And we've really been, um, you know, engaging in different ways with community members. So for the agile displacement funds, we did some community engagement sessions for that to really hear from the community, what are their priorities in impacted areas around agile displacement. Similarly, when we were looking at the light drill this spring, we did some community engagement sessions there to hear from the most sort of proximate communities that might be the most impacted might have higher, um, you know, instances of communities of color. And we wanted to hear from them what are their priorities. So one of the things that we're doing is, of course, we have community members here who are working in their own sort of spaces and communities, but we're also as a committee trying to engage with the community on some of these difficult and important questions. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the light rail. So a lot of folks will remember um we had over the spring, you know, the Austin Transit Partnership came up with five different options, you know, for our, this first phase of our light rail uh, build out. And then there was the opportunity for the community to give their input. And then, you know, a rail line was chosen, which is the 38th to Old Torf to Yellow Jacket. And like you said, you all were doing community engagement as well and trying to figure out what what recommendation you would give because you played a role here too, giving a recommendation about what you thought would be the best route. And um, I think you all came up with two, and one of them was this 38th to Old Torf to Yellow Jacket. Like, let's talk about what what was in these routes that made them appealing um, to, to y'all. I know one of the big ones that um, maybe people might not be aware of is you were really advocating for an on-street option. So there were options uh, to go a little bit underground or to be elevated. Um, talk about the benefits of on-street, why you all felt like on-street was the better route to go. So just to explain to people, some of the options that have been put out included, you know, infrastructure on the street. So we would have light rail running at the street level. There were, there was one option that talked about an underground section and an option that talked about the above ground section, similar to what parts of New York, Brooklyn and Chicago have. But the, the reason we really gravitated to the on street option was there were multiple reasons. The biggest one perhaps was of course, that there's a big cost differential. So similarly uh, situated options that were in different sort of grade separation, as we call it, above ground, 
at ground or below, there was a difference in the reach and how many folks would be served by it. So we were really interested in making sure that the most amount of Austin residents were being served by this first option. So this is the first phase of the light trail implementation. And to make sure that as a part of that, we were not only serving the most people, but we were serving the folks who would be most impacted. So that's actually one reason why we were really excited about the 38th Street to Altdorf to Yellow Jacket option, because it actually served the most communities of color by going east of Riverside. So the Metopolis community, Riverside community, a lot of folks there who have historically not been part of our you know, infrastructure efforts or amenities, this was a great way to ensure that we were reaching East Austin. Another thing that was really important to us was from the perspective of accessibility, that we have members uh, from the accessibility justice community of the CSC, but also otherwise that we were engaging with who were very clearly telling us that on the street options, were the best in terms of accessibility. Because even though there's elevators for stations in other parts of the world or country, sometimes those elevators stop working. And so folks simply become stranded and unable to use the system. We would have to provide ramps or other ways to achieve them. But what they really talked about was that if you were on street, it was the best and most accessible options for folks who might have mobility impairments, but also mothers with strollers or other people who might need um, you know, an ease of access. And lastly, I would say it really allows for a much more seamless integration with the other transit options. So that includes everything from our local bus lines and bus rapids to micromobility options, biking, pedestrian infrastructure, and then it embeds you in an active street level activities. So if you're looking at businesses and other things opening onto the street, the on-street option seemed one of the most exciting ones in doing all these different things while serving the most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you talked about um, serving the most people. So I think that this 138th to, you know, Old Dwarf to Yellow Jacket um, served maybe the second highest. The highest was, I think, going from Lamar or... Yeah, where did that one start? North Lamar Transit North Center, Lamar I guess. Center, yes. All the way um, uh, to Pleasant Valley also, or or something like that, pretty far east. Um, and so those were the two you all settled on. Is like, okay, these are serving a lot of people and a lot of um, east side communities as well. Yep, that's correct. And the way the boat laid out was, you're right. So the North Lamar Transit Center option was the one that had impacted the most people. But it's interesting, again, that the one that goes all the way out to Yellow Jacket actually serves more people of color. Mm -hmm. So there was a choice between ensuring we want to serve the most people, but we also want to serve, you know, historically marginalized communities. We want to serve those who will be most impacted and might actually most benefit from a transit option such as this. Right. And I guess also this, uh, the one they chose, 38th Ultra of Yellow Jacket, also goes north, south, and east, you know, covers more sections of our city, I suppose. That is correct. And although, uh, depending on the way it was designed, this might be the option that actually allows the most easiest expansion in the future. Like you said, it has a spur going in all different directions, so we can go whichever direction to expand in the future. And I will say that the North Lamar Transit Center option, even though it was very appealing, folks did say that that was a very clear priority for next phases of implementation. And that's something we really very strongly to staff with Austin Transit Partnership. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I found interesting in, in reporting about this and sharing uh, the chosen route with the public is like the biggest comment I've gotten back is 
like a lot of anger that it doesn't go to the airport. And and I wonder if you have any comments on that or how you internalize it or why you feel like the route we chose is the right route as opposed to that. I think there was only one option that actually ended up going to the airport. Of course, this does, uh, the route we chose does have an option, you know, that's like a priority extension, but it's not there right now. And that's the feedback that I think we did receive as well. There were folks who were interested in um, in going to the airport. And I will say the CSC had a very robust and actually pretty exciting conversation about this because we all have very strong opinions on where do we want to see this all go. And I think there were multiple reasons why we thought that the you know the airport option was not going to be the first priority in this first implementation phase. The biggest one being we wanted to make sure that we were serving the most local Austinites. How can we let out and create something that really helps folks who are using transit today in our city to be able to do service? So one of the issues was if you went out to the airport, you lost a lot of that north or south infrastructure, which meant folks who might be going to 38th Street or folks who might be going to Altdorf would actually not be able to use light rail because light rail will be going out to the airport. At the same time as we were trying to dig into data, we really found that there's not a lot of residential once you go east of the highway towards the airport. So really you are not serving that much money residences in the middle between our airport and our um, you know existing residential centers. So it became really important to think about that data perspective as well. And then I think folks had really strong feelings about ensuring that this was part of sort of next phases, but with the understanding that from an equity perspective, we first wanted to serve you know, Austin residents and largely communities of color and working class folks who might be using the transit infrastructure today. And I will say as somebody who's used that bus many times, we have a really good bus line that is on frequent timing. So it's every 15 minutes going out to the airport today. And I would say anyone who's ever tried to use rideshare at our airport, I can tell you it's easier, more accessible, more direct, saves you a lot of time to use the bus because the bus stop is right outside the doors. So we have good infrastructure there today that can still serve a lot of people. Yeah. And I guess also with um, some of these other routes, you probably get more people being able to use it daily. I mean, most people are not going to the airport daily unless they they work there. Yeah. And we did try to parse out the data of how many like how many employees were working at the airport as well? How many workers could we be serving? And again, I think it just didn't pan out versus going further north. Really, you start accessing a lot of residents and employees who might be traveling there. Yeah. And so, you know, a- another thing you hear a lot um, in talking about the plan is, you know, some folks are really excited about light rail. And I think there are still some in our community that are unsure. We voted about it, you know, we're moving forward with this, but I think there's still a lot of questions like, why do this versus, you know, just beef up our bus system or, you know, what benefits is this light rail system going to bring to us? Can you talk a little bit uh, about how you, how you see that? So yes, uh, 100%. I think this is something we hear as well. Why not go for just uh, bus infrastructure or some other kind of infrastructure? I think there's multiple different reasons. I think the most important one is that beyond a certain point, we have seen even our rapids increase in capacity in a way that's sort of unsustainable. We can no longer continue. So if you look at the For example, the number 801 that runs pretty much on one of the alignments of the real north-south on Guadalupe Lamar. 
what we do see is there are chunks and I've ridden that bus where it's standing room only. There is no way you can sit there during most of the timings because even though we have one of those expanded accordion buses, the number of riders is way more than that. So if we want to run high frequency routes and we want to run something with more capacity where during rush hour, a lot of people can have good room expand in the future and also have space to sit light rail or some kind of expanded infrastructure becomes really important. I think that's why light rail is really critical because not only will light rail serve folks today and the riders today, it really allows us to expand in the future in a really sustainable way, which is exciting. The other thing I would say, we have a strong community drive and commitment of folks who also want light rail as well. And there's, so there's a sm there's an important community voice that has reminded us again and again while bus rapid or some other infrastructure might be great, they really want to see light rail be a part of Austin's fabric. A lot of peer cities of our size do have similar infrastructure. So there's a certain kind of excitement that comes from that. And then the last thing that becomes really important is that it's this kind of wonky. So bear with me for a second. It's what's called sort of fixed guide um, infrastructure. So essentially you have transit infrastructure that cannot move someday. You don't have a bus stop that can be moved in the future remap or a bus rapid that might be realigned as routes are being recessed. Light rail is a really strong commitment to the immediate surrounding areas. And so it can lead to certain kinds of development potential. You can have different amenities attached to it. You can really serve communities with the knowledge that that infrastructure is not going to shift or change in the future. Yeah, you know, so so speaking of that, one of the big parts of this project and when voters approved it um, in 2020 was $300 million in anti-displacement funds, right? Because when you're talking about this and we're talking about bringing this line, you know, through the Montopolis neighborhood all the way up to um, Yellow Jacket, you know, those areas are, I mean, it's already happening, but at very high risk of gentrification, right? And so... Um, we're, we're grappling with this issue of, you know, wanting to serve these communities, but also wanting to make sure that they are still around by the time the infrastructure is built, right? That they don't get pushed out because of rising prices. So let's, can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, first big picture, what the anti-displacement funds, um, what the goal is, and then we can talk a little bit more about what's been done so far. Sure. So like you said, when, um, we talked about Project Connect, a lot of folks in the community, particularly people I was working with, in you know the labor or the racial justice or folks working with communities, they were like, this is great. We want to see more transit. We want to make sure that our you know workers and our working class folks and our communities of color really get to access and use these services. That's great. But there was this fear that there could be a potential for transit and use displacement, i.e. with the building of light rail, particularly the concern would be that we could see a rise in property um, you know, prices and the market could go up. And this could mean that we could have displacement related pressure. And that's not what we want, because it's really, really important for us to keep the folks who are there today to stay there, not just from an equity perspective of them having to be able to use the infrastructure in the future, but actually also the fact that our transit system depends on those folks. Those are some of our highest riders, and we want to make sure that those folks who actually will want to use the system continue living there. In other communities, we have seen that when property prices might go up like this, 
we might lose people, you actually lose a lot of your core transit riders in that push. So if you want a successful transit infrastructure, it made sense to have anti-displacement conversations hand in hand. And that's really what this 300 million allowed us to do, to not just make sure that we had affordable housing and other kinds of infrastructure, but that we were really focusing very intentionally on curbing any transit-induced displacement. Now, of course, one of the challenges that we're facing with these funds is that even though we're looking at this infrastructure-related displacement pressure that might be um, might occur in the future, we have massive amounts of displacement pressure in large parts of our city. In the Eastern Crescent, particularly, where folks are feeling that pressure of you know, feeling like they might be removed or might lose their homes or might lose their communities. So we're having to work with this legacy of displacement in Austin while also ensuring that our focus remains on this transit piece of areas that are, that are going to be around this light rail infrastructure. Right. And so the, you know, the CAC has been playing a big role here in trying to figure out how this money gets spent because um, like I said, it's 300 million, but it's not all going to be spent tomorrow, um, kind of putting together a plan. So let's talk about how that process has gone, trying to make sure that um, we're thinking smartly about where we want that money to be spent. So the Community Advisory Committee is playing a really key role in shaping the Project Connect and a displacement funding. And what this looks like is everything from guiding how we should be prioritizing different policies and mechanisms for expending funds to also engaging in looking at what kind of, you know, organizations might get particular kinds of funding. So we've been involved in some processes like that. It has all been really exciting, but we're also very cautious about the fact that one, we're trying to do this work in this context of larger displacement pressures. And two, we're trying to do this work in an environment where 300 million is great and the first of its kind funding in the nation, it is nowhere enough where the need is. And so we have to somehow make sure that we're catching up to it. Early on in the first part, there were three areas of importance where we were trying to fund. One was really looking at um, you know, acquisition of existing multifamily properties that might be, you know, naturally occurring affordable housing or NOAA, i.e not ones that have subsidies or are legally restricted, but we have the ability to have them remain affordable over time just because of their nature. And so the city used some funding um, and to purchase existing multifamily. And this includes, you know, stuff that we were able to do, you know, in the South, in District 3, in District 4, towards the North. This is really important for us to ensure that we're preserving those existing multifamily apartments so that we're able to house people in the long run and keep folks there. A certain uh, set aside of the funds was also being used to really work with smaller nonprofit affordable housing developers to purchase certain properties. And so one exciting uh, one was actually with the Austin Revitalization Authority in Northeast Austin that allows them to expand some of their work in the future and really build on that. And then lastly, it was also uh, related to looking at some of the work around gap financing for affordable housing that exists. And we've been able to do some stuff um, excitingly on Airport Boulevard, on Gardner Road. So we've been able to expand those affordable housing opportunities as well. Similarly, one other aspect of it was that was really important was the understanding that while we had acquisition and development of affordable housing as these important strategies, 
We were also working with community organizations on other kinds of needs and ideas as well. And so the city came up with this idea of what's called the community initiated solutions. And this was a sort of a really large grand opportunity for organizations or coalitions of organizations to come together and pitch ideas about what were some of the most important needs that folks had around displacement. And this was a really vast look at everything. So things that are moving forward include job training. Um, they include looking at things like providing rental assistance to folks, being able to do community-based agreements around certain things, being able to provide existing homeowners with legal assistance to really ensure that their property paperwork is correct so that they can really pass on all of this great wealth that they were building through housing to future generations, to looking mm. at how do we ensure that existing homeowners can expand ownership access. So a lot of different things to say around this part, really looking at displacement from a very broad perspective of different community needs that are critical to allow folks to remain in their um, communities. And I should say that a lot of this work around uh, the anti-displacement work is being driven by this great work that was done by 30 community catalysts who are community members from impacted areas who came together and worked on our anti-displacement and equity tool. And that's part of what's been guiding all this work. And they're the folks who really pushed us to think broadly about what displacement meant beyond simply the production of affordable housing. And that was Avez Azar. And so what comes next for Project Connect and Austin's light rail system? Well, now that the route has been chosen, a whole bunch of technical, engineering, and environmental assessment work has to be done, which will likely take a few years. If you want to stay up to date on what's going on, bookmark projectconnect.com and check in periodically for updates and more opportunities to get involved in things like station design. Aves also invites anyone who's interested to attend upcoming community advisory committee meetings, which include opportunities for public comment. Info about those meetings can also be found on the Project Connect website. Meanwhile, two new Metro Rapid bus routes are also in the works. A Pleasant Valley line that will run from Goodnight Ranch to Mueller, and an Expo Center line that will run from downtown to the Travis County Expo Center. Those have also experienced delays, but are now scheduled to be operational in early 2025. Also, the Red Line, which is our commuter rail system, is getting some upgrades, including a new station at the Q2 Soccer Stadium. And last but not least, you might have seen some news reports about potential legal challenges to the structure of the Austin Transit Partnership. It's a bit complicated to really get into in this podcast episode, but a bill filed this legislative session that would essentially have required Project Connect to go back before voters for another vote, it ended up dying at the last minute. But in addition, our state attorney general, Ken Paxton, also earlier this year, issued an advisory opinion about the structure of the Austin Transit Partnership and its funding model. And that advisory opinion raised some questions about what comes next for the organization. Again, this is a bit complicated and more than we can cover on today's episode. But for a quick recap, here's a quote from a great Austin Monitor article covering the issue in May of 2023. Quote, one of the main discussion points in Paxson's opinion concerns whether state law allows tax revenue collected by the city for the broad use of maintenance and operations to be used to pay for bond debt issued by the Austin Transit Partnership, the local government corporation created to manage the $7 billion Project Connect plan. 
Transit insiders and those who have studied the opinion closely feel the specific wording Paxson used and the footnotes included in the document offer a legal and bureaucratic path for the transit plan to move forward. The wording also indicates that ATP has the authority to issue debt and that the 2020 bond election strongly approved by voters was legal and valid, though there is the potential for court proceedings related to ATP's debt issuance. End quote. Now, I asked ATP about um, Ken Paxson's opinion, and they sent back this statement from Greg Canale, who's the executive director of the Austin Transit Partnership. Quote, Austin Transit Partnership is committed to fulfilling the will of voters to implement Austin Light Rail. Per the Attorney General's opinion, ATP, as a local government corporation, has the authority to issue bonds and notes, and cities have the authority to transfer funds to it. ATP has always recognized that there are many steps ahead in our financing process, and we will follow state law and take this opinion into consideration as we advance our financing. End quote. So, as of right now, things are moving forward. And as our guest mentioned, this is a big investment for our community. And even though the first phase route has already been chosen, there will be plenty of opportunities going forward for you to help shape what our new transit system ultimately looks like. So as always, keep an eye on our Instagram page for updates and opportunities to get involved. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based right here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing land of shows, visit kop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening.